BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, October 2nd, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace, without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills, from former guest Stephen Novella. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. In 2014, there were 585 magnitude three or above earthquakes in what state, Andre? California. Oklahoma. What? Twenty In 2013, that number was just 109. And there is a conclusion around this. Humans are causing the rise in earthquakes in Oklahoma. Are Period. We, are End we of building story. bunkers? No. We are causing induced earthquakes in the area. And that's the conclusion of research conducted by the USGS, the National Research Council, and, and a number of other groups, uh, primarily in Oklahoma, Texas, and other areas of the central U.S. These groups have concluded that this quote-unquote induced seismicity is definitely due to behaviors related to injection of wastewater back into the ground. And before you make the link that this is all about fracking, it, it's not quite because wastewater injection is part of a lot of oil and gas operations and water waste operations. So Wait, wait, what is wastewater injection? Wastewater injection is literally where you take water that's come out of the earth and put it back. And in this case, Oklahoma is above a huge bed of uh, what used to be a, a salt sea. So all of this really briny water is coming up when we do any sort of drilling or fracking where we're breaking sort of shale and rock layers below the surface. And that water coming up is you have to dispose of it somehow. Well, we have a drought in California. This is water with salinity like three to four times of the ocean. Ah, <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> but the interesting part about this is that while we know that humans are causing this through that behavior, it's not 
It doesn't happen consistently in every time. So I sought out one of the lead researchers at the USGS on this project, Justin Rubenstein. He's a research geophysicist at the USGS and deputy chief of the USGS's Induced Seismicity Project. While the scientific conclusion is really solid, what the next steps are are not. They're murky at best. So that'll be our interview for this week. But um, did anything catch your eye in the news this week? So I have a couple stories for you. One is sort of a catch up on a story that we did uh, a couple months ago. So we had a scientist from Monsanto on and we talked about the origin of the BT crop, Bacillus thuringiensis. Our least controversial show ever. Yeah. And we talked about BT in the context of corn. And it was really developed to basically stem the tide of this specific type of roundworm that eats into the center of the stalks of whether it's cotton or corn. So normal like pesticide spraying doesn't sort of get at them in the way um, in the way that the genetically modified can. Uh, well, there is an ally for corn farmers everywhere. What's that? It's the bat. The bat. Yes. Yeah, so uh, wait, wait, do you mean Batman? I do not mean Batman, nor Robin, nor any of his cadre of of heroes. I'm talking about the North American bat. In this case, in a recent report in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they found that bats are eating these worms at such a high level that their economic impact is upwards of a billion dollars on the corn industry. And it's because these bats are coming out at night and they can attack the larvae either when they're coming out at night or they can reach into their burrowed holes inside the stock and grab them. So is this actually causing an increase in the bat population? Uh, not quite yet. Uh, that's not what they're they're seeing uh, just yet. But it does introduce the idea of maybe we shouldn't put as many scarecrows out <laughs> in the farm. <laughs> I guess maybe bats can't really see that, so it doesn't matter. But it's an amazing benefit because bat populations increased yield on corn farms by 1.4%. Wow. It is an incredibly tangible benefit. And so there is an effort underway to make sure that bat populations are thriving near corn centers, but bats need really specific habitats and they're under threat by a lot of different situations, including mostly habitat loss. And they're guano and super smelly. Yeah, but they keep that to themselves, right? That's true. So I think it's okay. But it's a really interesting corollary that there are some efforts underway to utilize new concepts and ideas to stem the tide of of different worms that are infecting. Awesome. So what caught my eye this week is the calendar for the Bay Area Science Festival, which is just around the corner. Yeah, it's coming up October 22nd and November 7th. So anyone in the San Francisco Bay Area should come out and check our 50-plus events uh, running during that time. We have stuff for kids of all ages, I like to say. Specifically for families, we have a lot of our programs that are free, like we do a takeover of AT&T Park and fill it with all this hands-on content, turning it into an outdoor science museum. Or we give people access to facilities they normally wouldn't go to. Can I interest you in coming to a human parasite lab? No, thanks. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. It's an amazing place, but it scares the living hell out of me. Uh, well, for those of our listeners that don't know, Kishore is actually El Jefe, the big cheese of the Bay Area Science Festival. He's the director of the festival. So this is his busiest time. It is. So you can check out programs at bayareasciencet.org and maybe 
Indre, maybe you'll make a couple appearances during the festival? I got a few cameos in my back pocket, yeah. Uh, I got one event in which we're going to be talking about music and science at the San Jose Tech Museum on November 3rd in the evening. It's an adults-only event, I believe, right? It is. That one's shaping up really well. There will be booze. It should be a lot of fun. And then I'm doing a kids' event uh, for Frontiers, which is a a kids' um, sort of scientific magazine, uh, on November 6th at the Chabot Space and Science Center over in Oakland. That's uh, November 6th. And it's a really cool event because usually, you know, you have a bunch of scientists critiquing a bunch of kids' presentations of science, right? That's what happens at Science Fair. But the tables are turned at this event. A bunch of scientists give presentations and they are critiqued by a bunch of kids. I think that one's going to be my one of my favorite ones of the festival. So come check it out, bayareascience.org. And there is a to-be-announced really awesome Inquiring Minds event, which we can't talk about yet, but it's going to be super awesome. With that, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Justin Rubenstein. This episode is sponsored by Sayer. Sayer, that's S-A-Y-E-R, is an app that lets you exercise that deep, inquisitive nature we all have. With Sayer, you could ask questions, share your opinions and predictions, and get immediate answers to anything you like. You can debate, predict, and stay curious about the big questions that shape our times. Questions are at the heart of any interesting conversation. The better the question, the better the conversation. The best ones make you stop and consider new possibilities, fire you up, and spark your imagination. Sayer takes that curiosity-fueled, questiony energy that drives all our best conversations and distills it down to a fun, easy-to-use app. You can go on Sayer, ask and answer questions, or just find out what everyone else thinks. Everything from who's going to win the election to is there alien life out there or when are we all going to have self-driving cars. Get Sayer and have your say on the questions that matter. Go to sayerapp.com slash minds. That's S-A-Y-E-R-A-P-P dot com slash minds and install the app. That's it. Remember, with Sayer, you ask and the world answers. This episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses has been in production for 25 years and offers engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their fields. One course you could check out is Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills from former guest on Inquiring Minds and neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine, Stephen Novella. This course helps you understand the neuroscience behind how our thinking works and what can go wrong. It explains the fundamental skills behind logic, reasoning, and argumentation, as well as how to avoid common pitfalls and errors in thinking, such as logical fallacies and biases, and how to distinguish good science from pseudoscience. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. Order Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills, and get 80% off the original price. But this 80% off savings is only available for a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Justin Rubenstein, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. So we've heard a lot about the rise of the number of earthquakes in the central United States. How many are we actually talking about? Well, we're seeing hundreds of magnitude three earthquakes occurring in the central United States every year. Uh, And that's a massive increase. At this point in time, there are actually more magnitude three earthquakes in Oklahoma than there are in California. And magnitude three doesn't sound very big to me. Can you put that in perspective of what traditionally was happening in uh, in the central U.S. Magnitude threes, you're right, aren't, aren't particularly big. You know, if you're pretty close to it, you're going to feel it, it might shake you up, but there's probably not going to be any damage. 
Now, historically, Oklahoma had, you know, maybe one or two magnitude three earthquakes per year, and that increased to over 400 last year. And we're on pace for another record year this year. And when did these start to really emerge? When did we go from one to few hundred? The earthquake rate really jumped in Oklahoma in 2009. We started to see earthquake rate increases in other parts of the central U.S. uh, coincidentally in 2009. And in Oklahoma, sort of 2009, 2010, there was an increase. There was another increase in 2011. And then again in 2013, 2014. And what's the big deal if magnitude three is basically doesn't really do any damage? It's kind of an inconvenience. I, you know, I live here in California. Magnitude three wouldn't wake me up, uh, frankly. So, I mean, what is the big deal about the emergence of this? Well, it's not just magnitude threes. We are seeing uh, damaging earthquakes in the central United States. So far, the biggest earthquake that we believe to be induced that's occurred was a magnitude 5.6 earthquake that was in Prague, Oklahoma in November of 2011. There have been a few other magnitude 5, some high magnitude 4s that have caused some damage. You know, fortunately, there's been no fatalities, but uh, you know, it's certainly something that we need to think about. And you know, generally, you know, the more small earthquakes you have, the the higher the earthquake rate, the likelihood of a larger earthquake is increased. And do those add Does like having multiple 3.0 earthquakes lead to long-term damage in a place, or is it really just uh, uh, relegated to that just initial blast? Well, there's certainly, you know, I'm not an engineer, so I should qualify that. But there certainly are reports of, you know, people's houses being shaken over and over and over in these magnitude three, three and a half, four earthquakes. And it certainly... It makes sense that if you rattle a house long enough, you're going to start sort of accumulating damage just from the repeated shaking. And certainly there are suggestions that the ground shaking in these earthquakes is a little bit different than it is in sort of regular tectonic earthquakes. And so maybe the shaking, if you're close to it, is going to be stronger. So let's get to the big question. Why? You've published a couple papers uh, in the last few months indicating a, a possible connection to why these are emergent since 2009. So what we think is occurring is a process used by the oil and gas industry called wastewater disposal, where they inject large volumes of water deep underground. We believe this is causing the earthquakes. Basically, what we think is happening is the water is injected, finds its way into a fault, and starts prying that fault over, open ever so slightly. And so in some sense, you could think of it as, as lubricating the fault, making it easier for that fault to slip. And what, when you say wastewater, what are we talking about here? Well, so wastewater is any byproduct of the oil and gas uh, process that needs to be disposed of. It's water that cannot be cleaned up enough to be discharged on the surface. And so generally we think of there's being two components of wastewater. One would be spent frac fluid. So Uh, Water that's been used in the fracking process that cannot be reused. And the oil and gas industry tries to reuse as much uh, frack water as possible because fresh water is expensive. And the other is what's called produced water. And this is water that comes up with oil and gas when you're pulling out the oil and gas. This is typically a salty brine that's just trapped in the same pore space as the oil. And if it's particularly salty, you can't, it's not economical for the oil and gas industry to clean this up. So let's make a distinction here. So you said this is this wastewater injection is a byproduct of oil and gas development. What kind of oil and gas development are we talking about here? 
wastewater is uh, a byproduct of oil and gas going back uh, to the beginning of you know oil and gas production. Um, you know, when you're pulling out oil and gas, this is just a part of doing business. There's going to be salt water coming up. Uh, wastewater disposal is many decades old. It's been something that we've been doing for a very long time. There's been an increase in wastewater injection in the last you know five or ten years, and this is probably related to the increase in, in earthquake rate. And why has there been an increase in the wastewater injection? Wastewater injection has really increased due to changes in technology or improvements in technology and in the oil and gas industry, as well as changes in oil and gas practices. Now, in the past five or 10 years, uh, horizontal uh, well drilling has really been an evolving technology where now drillers are able to make a well more or less, drill a well more or less, they'll drill down vertically and then drill horizontally into a formation that holds this oil or gas, which means that they're able to pull out much, they're able to access much more of the formation that holds the oil or gas. And so what this does is it oftentimes makes formations that wouldn't be economical, they wouldn't be able to make enough money if they just had a vertical well. But by having this horizontal well that covers much larger area, they're able to pull out enough oil or gas to make it economical, but that also means that there's much more salt water. So this is the change in technology is that there's a is being able to drill these horizontal wells. Now the change in oil and gas practices is there's been a new practice developed again in the last five or ten years called dewatering. And this basically is where they drill into a formation that again wouldn't have been economical and because it's very, very high percentage salt water. We're talking 5% oil or 10% oil, and the rest is salt water. So the rest is waste that they need to get rid of. And in the last few years, they've de developed technologies that actually make this, makes financial sense. So how much of this is contributed by the boom in fracking versus just traditional methods of just drilling for oil and technological improvements that you're saying? It's really hard to say. Um, you know, frack wastewater certainly has played a role in some of the induced earthquakes that we've seen. But again, this is frack wastewater. It's not fracking. If we look at, there was an earthquake sequence in 2011 in central Arkansas where the wastewater that was being injected was actually spent frack fluid. But if you go to what's known as the Hunton dewatering formation, which is in northern Oklahoma, they don't frack any of the wells. And they're producing incredible amounts of wastewater. And so all of the wastewater that is injected is just this produced water, the water that's trapped in the same formations as the oil. And I guess this is a maybe a silly question. Why are they injecting it back down instead of like disposing it on the surface somehow? Well, basically, it makes financial sense to inject it underground. Some of this water is very, very salty, uh, three to four times more salty than the ocean. And, you know, we've seen, for example, all these uh, desalination projects that we see here on the West Coast, these are incredibly expensive. And you're producing very large volumes here in the central United States. And so it's it would be incredibly expensive as opposed to drilling a deep well where you can flush this water down, typically safely. So how do we know the earthquakes are actually tied to these events? Like, How are you actually doing the science and the measurement to sort of show the link? Well, it's, it's actually a pretty challenging process because there's a whole lot of variables. You need to know, you know what is being injected, at what rate it's being injected, 
uh, how long it's been injected, where it's being injected. And you also need to have very precise locations of the earthquakes. You need to understand the hydrology. Where is the water going? How quickly is it traveling? And you need to know where, where there are fault lines. So there's a lot of pieces of information that you need to combine. And oftentimes, a lot of this information isn't easy to access. So, so really, it's sort of the first basic test is you know, looking for injection wells. And are these high-rate wells? Are they injecting, say, 100,000 barrels a month, 200,000 barrels a month? To put things in perspective, a beer keg is half a barrel. So one barrel is 42 gallons. And so first you look for high-rate injection wells, and are there earthquakes near them? And that's sort of the, the very base level of, of trying to make the connection between the two. Then you can say, you can look for, did the earthquake start shortly after injection started? Did the earthquakes perhaps stop after injection stopped? These are, these are nice ways to sort of make the connection. Now, there have been just a few, a handful of studies that have really tried to take the next step where they actually try to simulate what's happening. And so take the injection information, take everything that we know about the geology of the area and try to look at what fluid pressure changes would be on faults in the area or where what fluid pressure changes would be in the area of the earthquakes. And I, I guess uh, um, uh, this might not be true. Like, Are the earthquakes actually happening where the injection is happening? Sometimes the earthquakes are very close to the injection well. You can see earthquakes, you know, within hundreds of meters of the injection well. But we see earthquakes five kilometers, 10 kilometers. There are reports of 20 or 30 kilometers away from these injection wells. So that gives me pause because if it's 20, 30 kilometers away, how are you tying that back to the injection event where the fluid is actually causing that fault to slip in an area that's you know, that feels pretty far away. No, certainly that is a, a more difficult connection to make. And, you know, that's sort of a situation where you really need to have, you know, a secondary piece of information from either be it numerical modeling or you see a very close connection in timing. I think just a connection saying, you know, here's earthquakes, here's a well. Obviously, when you're 20, 30 kilometers away, that's that's a pretty significant distance. So, so you need additional pieces of information to make that case. When it comes to all this information, you said you have to gather a lot of information about these specific well sites and the earthquakes happening nearby. How are you actually measuring all the earthquakes in, these, in this very localized area, especially a place like Oklahoma where they probably don't have a ton of infrastructure to measure earthquakes over the last hundred years because there hasn't been that many? That, that is actually one of our biggest challenges is getting better seismological data. Just like you said, most of these earthquakes are happening in areas where we don't have a history of a lot of seismicity. So the density of seismometers is very, very low. And so that means that we're not able to detect smaller earthquakes and the precision and accuracy that we're able to locate those earthquakes is also significantly lower. In many parts of the central U.S., you know, we're looking at uncertainty of 10 or 15 kilometers. So it becomes a very difficult sort of uh, case to make. Now, what's been done in a number of locations is we've gone out or, or for example, the Oklahoma Geological Survey or the University of Memphis. You know, a number of us have gone out and deployed smaller networks of seismometers where, where they're much tighter spacing, you know, one kilometer spacing, five kilometer spacing, 10 kilometer spacing. So we're able to detect smaller earthquakes and we're able to precisely locate them. But this is really only going to be something 
that we're going to be doing in areas that already have earthquakes. So where are these seismometers going? Are you putting them just in public land or are the companies that control some of these well sites actually giving you access to put these seismometers right near the well site? In general, we're placing seismometers at people's homes or on on public land. Uh, Most of the wells in these areas are on private property. Uh, And so, you know, in general, we don't ask the oil and gas operators to put seismometers on their land. I actually am not aware of of any effort to do this. But, you know, in general, we're able to find private property close enough to to where we want to do things. So even though you can't get the seismometer right on top of the well, you've been able to garner enough of a network to come to the same conclusions about uh, creating this link. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think another important thing to note is while sort of public entities between the U.S. Geological Survey and the Oklahoma Geological Survey, we might have somewhere between 30 and 60 seismometers active in Oklahoma. There's probably on the order of six or 800 seismometers being operated by the oil and gas industry monitoring seismicity in the area. Unfortunately, this data is not yet available to the public, and certainly we're hopeful that, that we'd be able to access this data. That would indicate there's some recognition on their part that the, that this is an area that needs to be monitored, for sure. Oh, certainly. I don't think... I, I would say the larger players in the oil and gas industry don't deny that there are induced earthquakes. Uh, you know, certainly it's a recognized fact. It's established scientifically. Nobody's going to argue with sort of the classic cases of induced seismicity. Um, so certainly industry recognizes this. So you showed this link between uh, induced earthquakes with wastewater injection in Oklahoma. Will that finding hold as we explore other areas, maybe in in shale in Pennsylvania or other sites in across the country where there's a, a boom in that kind of development? Or is there something particular to the geology of Oklahoma that's driving this finding? You're asking a very good question. This is something that we're working on. Um, Certainly, there's lots of injection in the Marsalis Shale, which is the shale you're referring to in in Pennsylvania, and we really haven't seen uh, a whole lot of of seismicity there. There was a magnitude four earthquake in Youngstown, Ohio. Actually, Pennsylvania does not allow wastewater injection, and so in western Pennsylvania, it gets trucked over to Ohio, where they do the injection. So we have seen some small earthquakes, but it's it's probable that there's something different going on in Oklahoma than there is in sort of that part of the country. Now, if we're able to understand what is the difference between Oklahoma and the Marcellus, or what is the difference between Oklahoma and parts of the the Barnett Shale in North Dakota that doesn't appear to have a lot of earthquakes despite the fact it has lots of injection. If we can understand the difference between this, Certainly, you know, it'd be, it, we'd hope that this could be sort of information we could use to, to try to mitigate or reduce the likelihood of large earthquakes. And to, just to be clear, the fact that earthquakes aren't happening to the same degree in those locations, you don't feel like that calls into question the findings in Oklahoma at all? No, certainly not. But we just don't understand at all what's happening there yet. And are there efforts underway to understand what's happening in those areas? To understand why... There's nothing happening in, in Pennsylvania or Ohio. Exactly. Or, yes. Um, you know, cert, you know what we really, th- you know, the sort of the geologist's expectation, sort of what I would guess is going on is, you know, the geology is different. That 
You know, perhaps there aren't faults large enough to produce, you know, felt earthquakes or detectable earthquakes. Perhaps there's not a fluid connection between where you're injecting and where these faults are. Perhaps the, the stress field is not strong enough or not appropriately oriented with, with the faults that are in this area to produce earthquakes. So there's, there's a lot of different geological possibilities that could explain why we aren't seeing earthquakes in these areas. And, you know, certainly it's, it's something that we're interested in. Tracking back to the beginning, we started this conversation by talking about the impact of those earthquakes, that those felt earthquakes, like these ones in sort of that 3.0 area, um, are certainly have the potential to cause some long-term damage in the, in the area. Now, is there like a marker that we're looking at for felt earthquakes? Is there a number that we look at and say, like, above this threshold, we're really concerned, but below this, we're not? Like, essentially, is there a dose? Because you know, we read information that just the act of fracking itself causes small earthquakes. They tend to be on a different magnitude scale. Well, certainly fracking, you know, is to some degree intentionally causing earthquakes, but these earthquakes are between magnitude minus one and one. These are earthquakes you're never going to feel. Sort of the standard sort of estimate for when you're going to start feeling earthquakes is magnitude 1.8 or 2. I really don't think most people are going to be feeling earthquakes that small. When you're getting up to magnitude three, people are, are going to start feeling these earthquakes in admittedly a small area. Now, as far as as far as a threshold, you know, when we should start getting concerned, you know, that's 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 really a question best left to engineers. Now, it's something I should point out is, you know, in, in the mining industry, they have very strict regulations about uh, ground shaking because you know they're going to be setting off lots of explosives and so there's a very specific limit on what the ground shaking can be and so regulation is based upon what they call nuisance now right now there is no such regulation for the oil and gas industry based on nuisance from uh, injection induced earthquakes but the one one could see how this might be a path that people would want to go down that's a funny term for what a 3.0 earthquake just a, it's just a nuisance <laughs> where do we go from here like we have this information that says we know that injection of wastewater uh, at the site is inducing these these earthquakes about 3.0 you know give or take uh, what's the next scientific question that you're really looking to answer now that you've seen this in Oklahoma well i really think the the next question is why do some wells cause earthquakes and others don't? To me, that's an incredibly important question. And, you know, it's not just Oklahoma versus North Dakota. You could look, go to the Raton Basin, which is southern Colorado and northern New Mexico. I've conducted a number of studies there. And we see some wells, shortly after they come online, within a year, we start seeing felt earthquakes, magnitude threes, magnitude fours. And then there are some wells 50 kilometers away that have been injecting for 20 years and have no earthquakes. So if we can understand the difference between what's going on at these two wells, you know, we might be able to come up with, you know, ways that you're, you're able to mitigate, you know, reduce the likelihood of larger earthquakes. And, you know, obviously, you know, the oil industry doesn't want to cause earthquakes. So if, if they can find a way to mitigate these earthquakes, that's something that they're going to do. So that's that's sort of the one of one of our big goals, and and I would say the second big goal, uh, in particular for the USGS, is coming up with ways to assess the hazard 
of induced earthquakes? What are the likelihood of, of producing large earthquakes sort of in the future? And sort of the traditional methods that we use to estimate earthquake hazard for tectonic earthquakes, they don't necessarily work for induced earthquakes because induced earthquakes can turn on and off very quickly. They can appear in new locations. Whereas sort of when we think about tectonic seismicity, you know, we the expectation is that earthquakes are going now are going to behave similarly to how they behaved in the past. Does that mean like we're getting like different types of waves coming off of these? Like we hear like when you have a big earthquake in California, we talk about S waves and P waves coming off, which have different like shaking models. We use the word epicenter a lot. Is there like a whole different language forming around these induced earthquakes? No, not really. You know, we basically think the earthquakes are the same sort of earthquakes. They're just being pushed along by by human activity. And, you know, if I were to look at a seismogram of an induced earthquake and a seismogram of a tectonic earthquake, I couldn't tell you there's a difference. There is no obvious difference that we're aware of between these two earthquakes. Is there information that we can learn from uh, research that's being done abroad, or is this really a specific to U.S. kind of situation? No, a number of other countries are are interested in induced earthquakes. Um, you see there's been a number of projects in Switzerland, for example. They use uh, what's called enhanced geothermal systems where they go into areas where they have, you know, hot rocks and they inject water at high pressure to bust up those rocks so that they're able to flush water in and bring the water up elsewhere and they're able to generate heat. They're generating heat and either spinning turbines or using that, that steam to heat homes. And they've seen uh, two magnitude, three and a half, 3.6 earthquakes, and that's actually stopped both projects that they've seen in Switzerland. There's also questions, uh, people are interested in induced seismicity in France, in Italy, in Algeria. So there's a number of areas where people are certainly thinking about induced earthquakes. I imagine the political climate for this work is tenuous at times. Has there been any sort of impediments to the research being conducted? Or has there been sort of, you know, have you been able to to sort of push forward without a lot of interference? Well, certainly in the USGS, we don't, I don't feel any pressure from above to, to do anything. Uh, you know, politically, you know, in a number of these states, it, it is a pretty unpopular thing to to say that the earthquakes are being induced. You know, a number of these states, you know, oil and gas is a very, very big industry. So I, I know that uh, some colleagues in, in other states have felt pressure coming from above. If there's something that you sort of hope that you can uh, accomplish in the next year around this, whether it's tackling another question or resources coming online, what's sort of the, uh, the gold standard for where this needs to go? Well, I think in the next year, you know, we at the USGS and myself personally, you know, I, I really hope that we're able to advance our, our hazard assessment techniques. You know, we, we recently released a sort of a first stab at a, at a one-year hazard estimate. And I think we're moving towards even having shorter-term assessments of, of earthquake likelihood. And I, this is the sort of information I think we're going to have very different consumers of this kind of information than we do for sort of the tectonic hazard maps. These are the sorts of things that, you know, uh, departments of transportation, for example, might be interested in. They only have a limited amount of resources, and so they probably are going to want to inspect bridges in areas with a higher likelihood 
of seismicity. And so that's that's my hope for the, for the next year is that we're able to produce more reliable information that can be used in in the short term for making decisions. Do you have any hope that industry is going to uh, be able to share information to you and would that be valuable? Oh, of course. Working with industry is is absolutely critical. They understand their fields far better than we do. You know, they've been working there oftentimes 10, 20, 30 years and so they've amassed a large quantity of information about the geology of the area. They know exactly what they're doing in these areas. And so they have a lot of information that is very useful and important for us in our science. In general, I found our relationship with industry to be mostly positive. You know, they're interested in our work. You know, we're interested in learning what what they have to do. And certainly a number of scientists, you know, myself included, have been able to work with industry and industry has been able to share some information about their fields uh, that that is useful for our research. And I think they've also learned from our research to try to better inform their practices. Well, hopefully together you guys are going to learn so much more about this that we can come up with a better system for managing the hazards that are emerging from this. Certainly that's my hope. Justin Rubenstein, thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. Well, that's really interesting. And although I have to say that for like at least the first half of the conversation, I felt like I just wanted to say, just say it's fracking. Just say it's fracking. I think what you sensed is there has to be a level of uh, carefulness in federal agencies, specifically scientists from federal agencies, and how they talk about this. And because it's so prone to misconception, because initially when he presented the paper to science, the headlines immediately read fracking causes earthquake, which isn't the point of his research. It's that it's the wastewater injection that is sometimes, mostly sometimes causing these earthquakes. And so that did not translate. And there's such a movement uh, around anti-fracking or fracking bans in states. I think it's reasonable to be careful about it. And, and and you're right. Like there is like <laughs> it, there's a level of uh, of conclusive evidence here that came on really strong being there talking to him in person. Like there is no question about it. Humans are causing these earthquakes and uh, we're not entirely prepared. I mean, I, I thought 3.0. What's the big deal? Like I live in San Francisco. That doesn't get me out of bed. That's nothing. Yeah, but. 500 3.0 I mean he's got a good point you know it's like it's not the magnitude perhaps but the frequency and yeah I mean it might be that it doesn't they don't accumulate right they don't have an accumulative effect on any structures but I don't know that we know that I think the the question both is while this hasn't been found in other areas I mean there is definitely some induced uh, seismicity in Ohio but we haven't seen this in North Dakota, like he mentioned. I think this begs the question of like, holy cow, we got some work to do. Like we need to put seismometers in all of these locations where we're doing a lot of drilling to understand these effects. And then we have to create really strong connections between this work and and building codes and civil engineering and regulations. And that means a, a higher degree of thoughtfulness on where drilling is occurring in reference to uh, places of infrastructure. Like if this severs like a big water pipe, that's a huge, massive problem. And it, and it does really make me sad that we can't use the water for something. I mean, I get that it's that it's super salty and that it's really expensive to desalinate, but it just makes me, uh, it just makes me so sad think, that we just can't solve two problems in one. I think that's totally 
unfair to this. Like the real misnomer here is the word water. Like it's technically water, but it, this isn't water in the way we'd recognize it in any way, shape, or form. So I. But it's still, you know, it's still a compound with a bunch of chemicals in it that we can't we use them so we repurpose them for some other you know use we're having a dihydrogen monoxide conversation here this is <laughs> like it is water with such a salinity level there's nothing to do with it i like salt <laughs> all right well i guess we can't solve this problem here and now so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Sean Johnson, Nick Cadillac, and Herring Chang. Nick Cadillac, best name in Patreon. What, well, what about the other two? Oh, those are great names too, but okay. Nick Cadillac. That is pretty awesome. <laughs> you can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your ideas of what to do with all that salty water or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and more, The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming or DVD and CD. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of Your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills from former guest Stephen Novella. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. That's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is fracking produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geech. See you at the Bay Area Science Festival. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.